Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This podcast is presented by Facebook, who are collaborating with the UK government and charities to support the pandemic response and limit the spread of misinformation. Sheffield is built on seven hills, just like Rome, said Jarvis Cocker, reflecting on the splendour of his hometown. But I think that's where the similarities end. And while he's right, of course, that the steel city is not overly blessed with sun-drenched piazzas, 18th-century fountains or ruins from the ancient world, Jarvis knows full well that it has a certain brooding romance of its own. If you've spent much time in Sheffield, and given I grew up on the edge of the Peak District and half my mates went to uni there, I could give you chapter and verse, then you'll know all about its proud but crumbling industrial heritage, its manicured parks, its buzzing music and nightclub scene. Get outside the city centre, and as the estate agents will never tire of telling you, miles of jaw-dropping countryside are just a stone's throw away. But it has its problems too, and I don't just mean having to trek up and down all those bloody hills hung over in the icy Pennine wind. South Yorkshire is frequently ranked as one of the poorest regions, not just in England, but in the whole of Western Europe, and there are pockets of serious deprivation. In short, it's a city of contrasts, and few politicians know it better than Louise Haig, the MP for Sheffield Healy, and a Sheffielder born and bred. I grew up on Aberdale Road, which is the road that sort of borders my constituency right down it. My dad lives in my constituency now, so it was the first time he was ever forced to vote Labour when he had to vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I represent a lot of my friends uh, from school, which makes for, again, interesting MPing when they're emailing me with their potholes and their streetlights. <laughs> Does this mean you can't go out drinking back home anymore because you have to be this very, you know... No, that doesn't stop me going out drinking at home, not at all. <laughs> OK, glad, glad to hear it. Despite having been an MP for six years, Lou is still only 34. She was the youngest Labour MP at the time of her election in 2015, and her shock of red hair and raucous sense of humour made her an instantly recognisable figure around Parliament. She's in the shadow cabinet now, and has already fought, and seen Labour lose, three general elections and an EU referendum. But for all that's happened to the political landscape during those turbulent years... She's still sitting on a healthy, if reduced, Labour majority of 8,500. There's not much sign of the red wall crumbling around here. Not yet, at least. Indeed, her constituency, Sheffield Healy, in the south of the city, has returned a Labour MP at every election for the past 50 years. Sheffield is quite a divided city along east-west lines. The east is traditionally industrial and since the 80s has seen jobs decline, so is now a pretty deprived area of the city and the West is much more affluent. So my constituency kind of spans both those sides of the city, so takes in very, very deprived wards but pretty affluent areas as well. And I always think of Sheffield Healy as kind of being a bit of a microcosm of the traditional Labour voting coalition. It has very traditional kind of white working class areas that went very heavily Brexit and very middle class kind of liberally areas as well that were very heavily heavily remain in the referendum, so it's been an interesting constituency to represent over the last few years. But I haven't got Lou Haig on today to talk about Brexit, or the Red Wall, or Labour's endless woes. 
or any of those other topics we in the media may have expanded a little too much energy on these past few years. Today, we're doing something a little different. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that every few months we try to get out of Westminster, in spirit at least, and hear from a local MP about one of the many burning issues filling their constituency mailbag. Something they know is important, but doesn't get the national attention it deserves. Something people actually care about in, you know, real life. I've been pestering Lou to do one of these episodes for a while, partly because she's always good fun to talk to, but mainly because, a bit like Robert Halfon in season one, if you heard that episode, I knew she fit a certain profile. A campaigning MP who cares enough about the people in their constituency to get properly, deeply involved in their problems and their day-to-day lives. Trust me, they're not all like that. Anyway, she didn't disappoint. A former youth worker, Lou wanted to talk about the challenges faced by some of Sheffield's most vulnerable children and their families just in accessing the basic care they need. Specifically about how for the parents of kids with special educational needs, or SEN, every day can seem like a fresh battle for support, for funding, for understanding, just to get through the day. Lou put me in touch with one of the constituents she's been trying to help, Rachel Crawler, a mother of three from Sheffield and a truly remarkable woman, who spoke to me eloquently about the daily challenges she and her family face. We'll be running that interview in the second part of the podcast, and honestly, it is worth your time. So, from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're headed north to Sheffield to delve into one MP's postbag and hear more about how and why we're failing the kids who need us most. When I was first elected in 2015, I was just so struck by how much of my casework was around special educational needs and parents battling with the system to try and get the plans in place for their children. This is Louise Haig, the MP for Sheffield Healy, discussing one of the most important and underreported issues in her postbag. I kind of work on a case-by-case basis around these to try and get the kids and the families the right support. But I've also been working at kind of system level across Sheffield to make sure that we address some of the structural issues around it because for whatever reason, SEN is becoming more of an issue in society, whether that's just because of greater awareness or whether there is a genuinely increasing need, I don't know. But it's shocking how much of our casework and how much demand there is across the constituency and I don't think my constituency is particularly unusual for that. Indeed, it's not. According to the Local Government Association, which speaks collectively on behalf of local councils, in 2019 there were more than 350,000 children across the country with special educational needs and disabilities. Incredibly, that's up by more than a third in just five years. Now there are a lot of reasons for that, including better diagnosis, a wider surge in pupil numbers, and increased awareness of SEN among teachers and parents. But inevitably funding has not kept pace with the soaring demand. Councils say they're having to apply tighter and tighter criteria as to which kids are allocated scarce resources, leading to endless conflict with desperate parents. MPs like Lou Haig find themselves increasingly drawn into disputes. 
It's kind of to make sure the processes have worked properly so that all the evidence has been properly considered. I have been known to come to tribunals myself with families, not to represent, but just to be there to support and sometimes to freak the council out a little bit, Um, um, to make sure that schools have properly considered everything. Sometimes I put supportive letters or documentation in for appeals with education and healthcare plans. Families basically get told everything that the child needs, but then doesn't get given anything alongside it to support them. So they then have to use the plan to battle with the school and battle with the system to try and unlock some of that funding and the support. And it's just not there. It's just not there in the council. And it's certainly not there in schools. And because loads of specialist places have been closed over the last few years as well, loads of kids with special educational needs have ended up in mainstream schools that simply don't have the resources or the ability to look after them. So you end up with just children in completely unsuitable educational settings and then that has a knock-on effect with children either being taken out of school entirely either at the family's behest as to a home educating them or a lot of the time schools exclude them because they're you know just too difficult and with the academy system being as it is there's then no actual requirement on schools to take them in so you end up with loads of kids not in education at all so it has really really profound knock-on consequences And it doesn't really feel like at a national level there's anyone getting a grip of it, really. Uh, And it's certainly an area that isn't talked about very often at all in the national media. You use the word battle for some of these parents trying to get what's essentially Mm -hmm. just the the education that their child needs. Why is it that sort of conflict? Why are you using words like in, in a conflict sense for what presumably shouldn't really be that? Well, because those parents end up in tribunals, end up in court battling the local authority, and that's how a lot of them would describe it, in order to get the funds released. And for a lot of them, that is the only way to access them, which is shocking, really, because they have to pay for lawyers themselves, they have to pay to access the tribunal, they have to pay to get through them. And councils will spend millions and millions of pounds on defending themselves against these tribunals every year. I understand why councils do that it seems so outrageous to think that they would be spending money stopping children getting support but the problem is they just don't have enough to go round so they have to find a way to distribute it equitably and that means saying no to lots and lots of children that do undoubtedly need it just to make sure that enough children get something rather than a few children get everything that they need but it means that thousands and thousands of children with additional needs are are going without. Lou Haig can reel off a seemingly endless list of families in her area who find themselves in exactly that situation. I've got a case, a young couple who've got a son who's got autism, he's got Tourette's and he's got something called complex tick disorder. He's been out of school for three years. She's had to give up her job as a midwife, give up her career entirely to home educate him. And they're just exhausted and they don't get anything at the moment from the council, but they're, they're waiting to go through tribunal now. And it just seems a totally bizarre situation that the children that have the most needs and need the most support are the ones that are at home getting absolutely nothing so what you're describing there is a kid how would i put it there's no question that they've got serious issues that mean they've got special needs if you know what i mean and yet still yeah, exactly there's no there's no gray area there this child has been diagnosed with autism with several complex needs you know these aren't i'm not talking about kids that suffer from mild anxiety or depression and that might need some mental health counselling. We're talking about kids, I've had kids in, in my constituency office that are profoundly deaf, that are mute, you know, that, are, that can't use the toilet at age 
10 and they're in mainstream schools and teachers and, and teaching assistants there do not have the training or the capacity to look after children with those kind of profound needs. And it's that knock-on effect because a lot of kids would previously have gone out of area into residential care settings, the ones with extreme profound needs, basically ones that are, for example, paraplegic or can't do anything for themselves at all. When those residential care settings have closed or when local authorities can't afford to place them there anymore, they then get pulled into special schools in the local authority and then those spaces get moved out so just greater and greater need gets pushed into mainstream and it's just totally unsuitable and that's why then you get kids that are excluded or not in education at all because they're just just not appropriate. And do you find yourself getting you know very personally emotionally engaged in these sort of cases? Yeah I mean you can't you can't help not to it's such a it's such a fine line to care and to be empathetic and not to let it drive you completely, completely crazy. It's it's really difficult. I know my caseworker really, you know, finds that quite difficult as well because you do get so involved. I mean, I've known some of my constituents and have been involved very heavily with their lives and their children's placement since almost the first day I was elected. So you feel very much part of your family and you win the wins with them, but you also suffer the losses as well. And it's it, it gets very emotional. The pressure these families find themselves under has knock-on effects for the other siblings and for the parents too. And where the system ultimately fails, the outcomes can be bleak. I've spoken to lots of families who've got, you know, children with SEN and then their siblings who don't, and they often feel very overlooked. So there's that kind of emotional guilt all the time about giving more care for one than, than the others and the others feeling overlooked and then having to battle with the system. Um, it is just absolutely exhausting for them. There's just, as I say, there's so many, so many consequences, either for the family as a whole and having to give up work or for the children ending up not in education at all through no decision of the family ending up excluded. And for some children, obviously, that then leads to them becoming groomed um, and becoming involved in gangs as well. And I've seen that as well. I had a young lad who was not in any education at all. I wrote to the Secretary of State at the time, this was about four years ago, and said he's been excluded from four or five schools. No one will take him, not even the alternative provision will take him. What on earth do you suggest we do? And within four weeks, I think, of sending that letter, he'd been murdered by another 15-year-old. That's, you know, that's the ultimate consequence of children not being in school, that they're just not safe. Do you feel like you can make a difference as a backbench MP? Definitely, definitely. You can stand up for people that wouldn't have a voice or know how to use the system otherwise. You can fix that individual case and hopefully get the right outcome for that individual family. But you can also use it to to address this more systemic issues as well. You know, for this issue, like so many, a lot of it just come down to funding and we're still seeing austerity in local government. The issues Lou Haig is describing seem so important, yet so detached from the day-to-day conversation in Westminster. Why isn't this being written about more, talked about more? I think that sometimes the stark reality of public sector failure can get a little buried under the jargon which is built up around it. All those acronyms, all the carefully constructed phrases which strip an issue of its meaning and its emotion. But at the end of the day, at the heart of this are hundreds of thousands of vulnerable children who need our collective help. We know this stuff matters. After the break, I'll be speaking with one of Lou Haig's constituents, Rachel Croller, about her endless struggle to get the support that two of her children urgently need and how on earth she juggles that with the rest of her day-to-day life. How does she find the time to work, to rest, to be a mum to her other daughter as well? 
you spend your time as a parent of a child with special needs constantly in a state of waiting to fight for the next thing. Stay with us. The pandemic has reinforced the importance of collaboration. Facebook has helped governments in more than 150 countries communicate public health messaging by providing more than £85 million in free advertising and training. The UK government and others around the world are using these free Facebook and Instagram ads to share authoritative, multilingual COVID-19 information. Get the full story at about.fb.com forward slash actions forward slash UK. Jack was about three and a half, four, when he was diagnosed as having autism, but nobody actually wants to confirm that and write it down and say officially he's autistic. But they're all saying, oh yeah, he's autistic. This is Rachel Crawler, a 44-year-old mother of three and part-time cleaner for a local charity. She spoke to me by phone from her home in the south of Sheffield. You'll notice the line quality is not perfect and you'll hear traffic noise from the main road outside her window. But this, I'm afraid, is life outside the studio. When he was 18 months, he stopped speaking. And he didn't really respond to cues. He stopped saying his favourite words. He still crawled. He wasn't... He wasn't then as mobile as he should have been. He didn't keep up with his peers at that time. So we knew there was something wrong, but you're never sure who to speak to or where to go initially, having not been through it before. So we tried the GP. Rachel's oldest daughter has severe mental health issues, while her son, her middle child, is autistic. So at first we didn't really think autism or we didn't think Asperger's. We didn't think anything. We just thought there was something, but we didn't know what. People are just reluctant, I think. The system just seems to take years to get a final diagnosis And then when we'd go to somewhere to be assessed, he'd play with me or he'd hold my hand and they'd go, oh, he's cuddling you, so of course he's not autistic. And presumably from your point of view, it's not only this frustration of trying to get the diagnosis, it also must be pretty stressful to know that your kid's not well and needs help. Yeah, absolutely. You're just going round in circles, you're just being moved from someone else going, well, I think it's that, but we can't do anything, I'll send you here. Well, we think it's this. But we can't do anything, so we'll send you here. It's like that all the time. (laughs) Originally, when he was of nursery age, his name was down at the local mainstream primary school, but we got him a place because they kept saying they thought it was something to do with just speech. It was speech delay. And they seemed to ignore the fact that he had spoken previously. So he got a place at a special speech therapy nursery for a couple of days a week. I see. But presumably it didn't progress in the way that they were hoping. It worked in that he was socialising. And then because he was socialising, of course, then they said, well, then that's not autism. It's definitely, I think it was severe speech and language impairment, I think they diagnosed him with for a while. So when he then went to mainstream nursery and then progressed into that mainstream primary school, he got some support for speech and language therapy. And how did he get on once he started to the mainstream school? How was he faring there? So for the first couple of years, it was okay. He got some speech and language therapy one-to-one a few times a week. But as the years progressed, as he sort of grew up, the difference between his development and his peers' development just became more vast. 
towards the end of his primary school days, they kept him in Y3 or 4, I think it was. I think it was a mixed year group. It was a Y3 and 4 class with a teacher that he just really resonated with and really liked and really trusted. And so he stayed in her class for a few years. And if it hadn't have been for this one teacher and the speech and language therapist that he really liked and she spent a lot more time with him than his statement suggested she should, I'd have pulled him out and tried to get him in a special needs school then. Uh, But the only reason that didn't is because the school were really accommodating. Now, I know that that's not the same for everybody, but our school really, really was. So you felt quite lucky in that sense. Absolutely. We were really fortunate, I think, yeah. What difference would it have made if you'd got that diagnosis early? Would that have changed things for you? If we'd have got the diagnosis earlier, then everybody would have to agree and give him the support and the fact that they just refused because he wasn't doing things that were typical of autistic children, that they just still kept saying it's speech and language and that's where the issue is. And it's frustrating when you can see your child who is struggling to communicate But you just know that that's not the case. You know that there's something else and it's not just you can't speak properly. You know that there's more to it than that. And that's the bit that's difficult that you're trying to explain to everybody. And what happens next? He goes on to secondary school, does he? When we went down the route of looking for special schools, there's a few in Sheffield and we looked round and there was a couple that weren't suitable. This one seemed more suitable for him, but then we were then told that, well, actually, we don't think he's severe enough to come here, so he might not get a place. So we'd have to go to a mainstream school. Um, At which point then, I wouldn't have sent him to a mainstream school because he just would not have survived there. So I would have pulled him out and homeschooled, I think. And how were you feeling when you got told that? It's devastating because... You're too severe for some places and not severe enough for others. It's just you spend your time as a parent of a child with special needs constantly in a state of like, agitation, waiting to fight for the next thing. You know, you can't hold down a full-time job because school are constantly on the phone with something he's done or said or a meltdown he's had or because he can't communicate, he gets frustrated. And that's all part of the autism, and you know that, but it's not written down anywhere. And so you're constantly just waiting for the next thing and the next battle. So, you know, you've got that statement, right, so now we'll get him in special school. Oh, well, actually, we might not be able to do that. So what's the next thing? And it constantly goes on like that. And meanwhile, you've got two other kids to look after as well. And, 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 <laughs> oh, <know>. absolutely. <laughs> So initially they said that he couldn't go to the school. What happened then? How did you manage to turn that one around? They came and saw him at his primary school where he was and saw how he was and saw the class that he was in and then said, well, actually, yes, we do think our school's the best place for him. That must have been such a relief for you. Absolutely, because we then had our eldest going through her mental health difficulties as well. So you are, you're you're juggling. (laughs) You're juggling the system constantly, I think. And how old was she when that She was 14. She was 14. And how did that present itself, you know, from from your point of view? What did you suddenly see happening? Uh, She was self-harming. She was cutting up the tops of her legs and just being really shifty and shady whenever you spoke to her. You knew that there was something and we couldn't pinpoint it for a while until we caught her. It's just, it's devastating, yeah. 
because you're constantly as a parent you're like oh I've not noticed it because I've been dealing with the other one I've not why haven't I seen this what what were the signs what should I have looked for but you until you go through it you don't realize what you should be looking for and so then suddenly you're facing a situation where you've got two kids with serious seriously needing help at the same time yeah what do you do then were you able to get help for her how did that side of things go for you Uh, that was a nightmare the services were just um i can't even explain it i don't think they're overstretched they're underfunded and there's just not enough support for these kids we got cams involved the child and adolescent mental health services they were really overstretched nobody seemed it's not it seemed like they weren't willing to help but I'm, I'm sure that's not true I'm sure they were willing but it was difficult and again she wasn't severe enough for them to deal with she had to attempt suicide and I had to pull her out of school before anyone went oh yeah maybe maybe we should help this kid because that then ticks a couple of boxes where they consider it to be a more serious case or something Absolutely, because she's in hospital having taken an overdose. So then they'll see her because they've got a crisis team at the hospital so that she can link into those services. But, of course, she linked into those services. They said, oh, yes, we can offer you therapy, but there's a six-month waiting list. <laughs> like, what good start? So then you've got to pay private. And I'm sure that's why they couldn't support in the first place because they didn't have enough money or enough staff or whatever. But it's just... Like I said before, a constant state of fighting for the next thing. <laughs> That's how it feels. So just so I've understood it right, she's she, she's found to be self-harming and she still gets yeah. next to no support from the agencies until she then takes an overdose and ends up in a hospital and is pulled out of school. And yeah. at that point, they say, OK, we'll help you, but not for six months. Yeah, basically. And then they also said, but because I've pulled her out of school, I could get fined for not sending her to school And if I got prosecuted, it would be neglect because I hadn't sent her to school for her education. Wow. (laughs) Did they come back in six months and say, right, we're ready to help now? Did it get to that point? It did. And she went through counselling and some therapy sessions with them. And then she was still telling them, I'm still unwell, I am suicidal. And so she was hospitalised for three months as well. She was in a psychiatric unit. And is anyone else helping you? Are you getting help from, I don't know, any other agencies or or charities or, or, you know, social workers or someone who's able to help you fight these battles with you, if you know what I mean? Is there anything like that out there? When you have these conversations with the professionals, you come away from a lot of them thinking, well, they just don't believe what I've said. So we were challenged at one of the meetings with CAMS because I was there. Um, My daughter's dad was there. And her stepdad was there and her stepmom was there. And Cam's was saying, well, there's absolutely no way that we believe you're all getting on and it's all this nice family. And that's absolutely how it was. We did all get on. They just didn't believe it. And they didn't believe her when she kept saying there was no trigger for the depression. There was no, like, one incident that happened that all your therapy can then be based around. Jimmy, you know, other parents who have in similar positions to you then now i mean is everybody having these battles with the system do you find yes a lot of times i believe any kids with disabilities are set up to fail so normally at primary schools there's a party at the end of each term for any child who's got 100 percent attendance if you have a child with a disability or a special need you are never going to attain 100 percent attendance 
because any assessment, any hospital appointment, anything like that that you need to go through is during the day. So that child cannot attend that. They're never going to get 100% attendance. We did get that changed at our school. But that's something that, you know, that does go on a lot of the time, especially at primary school. There's just no exemptions for things like that. And that sort of thing makes a big difference to the kids, I guessing, does it? Absolutely. It does at that age when they're little because they're included. They're included in those things. What happens next? So what happens next for Jack is he can stay at college till he's 20. So most kids, if they do A-levels, then they leave at 18, don't they? So he can stay at college till he's 20. So he's there three days a week. And is that working out? Does he enjoy that? <laughs> mm, yes, he does. He's very classroom-based at the moment when he's in college, which he's not a big fan of. There are various charities in the city that will take children that can't cope with mainstream education. And that's what Jack had when he was at his secondary school. So he did three days a week on alternative provision. But when he went to college, all that was removed because there was no funding for that. That's why I contacted Louise Hay because college had never told me that he'd lose those places. In the end, he got one day back. And that was thanks to Louise. Yeah, he got one day back where he's out and about cycling with a wonderful organisation in Sheffield. Um, And how about for your daughter? Is is she still getting some sort of support? No, that's just gone from bad to worse. (laughs) Is it? I'm afraid to say, yes, we will have to pay privately for a psychiatrist to give her an assessment. It's, again, like the autism diagnosis, when she was hospitalised, she was told she had borderline personality disorder. But again, nobody would commit that to writing because she was under 18. Then when she was over 18, the GP said, oh, no, we don't diagnose that until you're over 21. So now she's 21. Um, And now she needs a psychiatrist to diagnose her. But the waiting list for that, if you go on the NHS, is 18 months. Uh, See a psychiatrist for that diagnosis. So we have now to pay privately, and that's going to be about £900 for the initial diagnosis. Well, the initial assessment where she will be told whether or not she may have that. Currently, she's on medication for depression. Um, So, yeah, and their waiting list is six months. Um. And just tell us about the impact on yourself and also your youngest, who you've you've not mentioned really, but presumably, you know, this must be quite dominating for her as well, is it? Absolutely. It was things like, so when she was younger and Vic was going through all her, all her mental health trouble, it could be the last minute call to a friend saying, oh, can you just pick the youngest up today? And so she never knew whether I'd be there or whether I'd be in hospital with her or whether I was picking the other one up. There was a few months where she was just like, not in limbo as such. She knew what was happening. We were very honest with them all, but she didn't know if it'd be me picking her up. Would I be going on that school trip next week? Or did I have to go and do something with the other two? And and how old would she have been when it was really at its height, if you like? Um, She'd have been 14. She'd have been seven. Yeah. Six, seven and eight, probably, for those three years, yeah. And this is just life for her, I guess. I mean, this is just how it is and and she gets on with it, does she? Yeah, (laughs) she does, yeah. The bonus is she's learned that lying and keeping things to herself is really harmful, so now she's really honest. (laughs) That's good to hear. 
Um, and, and what about the impact on you? How on earth, I mean, the stuff you tell me, I mean, how on earth do you cope with it on a day-to-day level? It must be, must be non-stop for you. By literally doing what you've just said day-to-day. You know, you, there's not much planning that you can do because you cancel things at the last minute. You can't attend because one of them's unwell. You know, Jack might be having a meltdown. Vic might be really unwell that week. Um, so you literally just go from day-to-day. The underfunding of provision for children with special educational needs has been pretty staggering over recent years. Figures released to The Observer in May showed upper-tier councils across England overspent their SEN budgets by more than half a billion pounds last year. Many town halls said they would have little choice but to scale back the services they offered. The local government association, which represents councils across England, said the total SEN funding shortfall last year was likely to be £1.2 billion and could be even higher this year. Ofsted said in May that it was worried by how the system is coping. The government is well aware of the problem and is pouring in extra cash, although not at a rate fast enough to satisfy Labour. The Department for Education said an extra £780 million has been allocated this year and that overall SEN funding will have increased by a third by 2023. Extra money too has been found for children's mental health services. At the same time, a root and branch review of the way we provide and fund SEN services in this country is underway across Whitehall, although its conclusions are yet to be seen. For Rachel, more cash is only part of the answer. I think a lot of the time the parents know what they need and it's being listened to. And it's being believed when you say, this is what my child's going through. This is what we need to help. I think there's a lot more sort of therapies that need to be made available. I've seen on social media recently loads of adverts for the NHS and mental health. You know, we're here for you. You can sign up to this, that and the other. And you can, but you've got to wait 18 months. (laughs) So it's just not available now when you need it. Things don't move forward, they're just stagnant. People need to be listened to, I think. And parents just need to keep telling you. (laughs) (laughs) And so partly that's about funding, I guess, in the sense that the waiting list is presumably... Yeah, absolutely. But you're saying it's not just that as well, aren't you? You're saying it's about a culture, really, I guess, of the way that they approach, the so-called professionals approach parents who come to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes their hands are tied because there's not much they can do and you've just got to take the most severe cases and I understand that. But actually there are parents on the knees begging for help and they're just like, yeah, we'll put you on the list. You know, that's not helping them, that's not supporting them. Unsurprisingly, Louise Haig says a major cash investment in SEN is now needed. But the other key issues also need addressing. I definitely think training needs improving. I mean, we're not we're not going to be in a situation for a while yet that mainstream um, education isn't going to have kids with with SEN. So we need improved training for teachers and TAs. TAs are asked to do so much as well, and they're paid a pittance, but they're often asked to look after the kids with additional needs or take on teaching the entire classes when they really shouldn't. The healthcare system, mental health. Um, CAMS and the local council all need to be much, much better joined up and need to be accountable as a system, really. At the moment, as I say, it's just parental-led, so the only way they're accountable is if they're dragged through tribunal, but really they should be measured by their outcomes for children with SEN. And it would mean that the system could be much better navigated as well. And presumably this is a 
well, it clearly is a problem, not specific to your area, but happening in every constituency right across the country. Do you worry about all those other kids who either their MP isn't interested or in this particular issue or that they're just not even thinking of, the parents aren't even thinking of reaching out to an MP? Totally. I mean, that's that genuinely keeps me awake at night. How many children will be out there that don't have diagnoses, that the families have maybe tried to get, but have been told they're on a massive waiting list, so they've given up, or that they just don't know where to start. It really worries me because I think it just has such profound consequences for society as a whole. And it's such a waste because so many of these children are brilliant and without the right support, their talents will be wasted and society will lose out on the on the amazing contribution that they can make. But without that support, their families are going to really, really struggle and we see the outworkings of that all the time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And why not have a look back through our first two seasons for episodes you might enjoy? My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.